Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon. Hello, everyone. I am uh, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. We're devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It is Thursday, February 8th. I'm Jeff St. Clair, host and reporter at IdeaStream Public Media and moderator for today's conversation. We are at the start, maybe we're midway through a revolution in technology with the rise of artificial intelligence, AI. AI is everywhere, and it is fundamentally changing our world in ways that are difficult to predict. AI is already being used across many sectors, including workforce development and job training, and the topic of today's program, which is the modern job hunt. Today, we're going to look at how employers understand, evaluate, and match workers with their ideal careers using AI. Using personality and culture tests has been around for some time, and now workforce development apps have uh, churned out complicated algorithms to ensure strong matches. But does this technology account for external and internal bias, risk-taking, or a willingness for big change? Today, we're going to hear from experts in AI on how we can create and use the, this technology to improve the social determinants of work and help eliminate barriers to success. So, joining me on stage is Bethany Friedlander, President and CEO at Newbridge. Bethany, welcome. Neil Bruce, who is Chief Product Officer at Arena Analytics, and Ann Kahn, President and CEO at the McGregor Foundation. For those of us, uh, those of you streaming online, you can text questions, and that number is 330-541-5794. So, if you're streaming and you want to text a question or even sitting here, 330-541-5794. The City Club staff will try to get your questions uh, for the second half of the program. So, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please welcome, uh, join me in welcoming our guests today. So, I, I started, um, this was a new topic to me. I had really not thought about this. Um, I, you know, I've been involved with job searches like everyone, and you just do the old route. You kind of send in a resume. You hope for the best. But um, our world has changed dramatically in terms of the job search. This has been going on for a while. Some of my research, um, I, I came across a quote from, you know, someone in this industry who said, companies hiring pipelines are broken. And I want to ask all of you, you know, maybe starting with Bethany, do, is this something you agree with, and can you explain why they're broken? I'm going to get this mic wrong. Is this loud enough? You're okay. Good. So I think it's broken partly because um, our hospital partners are, there's a fire hose of applications. This is the largest employing sector in the city of Cleveland. People want to be working there. However, it's incredibly soul sucking to put your resume out into the ethosphere and never get back any feedback and not know. And so we definitely know from our students that they're only going to take those chances so many times. Yeah, I agree. 
I would say that you know, I've been in the recruiting space and the hiring space for about three decades, and I started 10 years as a recruiter, and then on the vendor side the last 20 years, including a stint at Monster. And what I found is people looking for work, uh, they have a misunderstanding that if I apply to one job in a company, there's this like magical person who runs around the entire organization trying to find them the right job as an internal advocate. There is no magical sorting hat within a company to do that. And I also find that applicants don't really know what's the art of the possible. They often are fairly myopic in the way they, they look at jobs, and technology hasn't helped them with that problem. It hasn't historically helped them find more opportunities and even to know uh, when companies are willing to invest in them what is possible. And so I feel like there's a real lack of communication for the applicant. There's a real um, lack of technological support for the organizations, and that results in kind of a really broken outcome. And I would just add that for senior living, most people don't think of senior living as an option. So because we are, healthcare is one of the largest employers in Cleveland, when you think about going into healthcare, you think of one of the big three. And we have a really exciting organization that would be a good fit, or in all of the partners in the senior living collaborative are looking for talented, um, individuals that want to be part of our mission and they don't think of us because they're waiting for one of the big three to get back to them. Mm -hmm. And I want to follow up with you a little bit about like this is one of the sectors we're looking at today specifically is senior people working in that industry in senior care. Tell us a little bit about that like how maybe if we're going to define the problem how you know how big is it what is the, the challenges that you're facing? and finding qualified workers. Sure, so if you think back to 2020, at that time for every senior over age 65, there were eight caregivers to take care of one senior. By the year 2050, there will be two for every senior, every person over age 65. So just from a demographic shift, there aren't enough individuals to help provide care for the people who will need them. So we're really trying to utilize this tool, and we'll get into the details, to find the right fit for individuals who want to be part of a larger mission, who have caring for other individuals, we can teach and train the skill set. But we're really help trying to find the right fit within our uh, organization and industry. Yeah, um, Bethany sent me some statistics, you know, uh, of what's going on um, in, uh, I guess, a lot of industries have high turnover. In fact, uh, more than half of people who start working in a place are going to either be quit or fired, you know, within a certain period of time. Uh, and that's a problem for employers because to hire a person, average, it costs over $4,000, just the process of doing that. Um, the, in, in, I guess the analysis is that we can find solutions because employee turnover can be prevented. And, and that's what ARENA is providing some of those solutions. Um, but there are problems with AI, too. So this is a process everyone's working through, and, and, and there's plenty of um, concern about AI in, in other sectors. But I want to uh, just put a quote here from um, Arena, which is, if people don't know, if you haven't you know, understood, that this is a company that's been, that Neil works for that uh, provides solutions for people seeking to, to, to fill positions. Talent and opportunity are organized in different ways. Talent is randomly distributed. Opportunity clusters around privilege. So 
basically. There's a lot of people living in neighborhoods who don't have jobs. The jobs are clustered around areas that you know, have been seen investment over the years, right? And this is sort of where your interest in, in arena is, Bethany. So describe how, how you feel that we're going to you know, maybe attack that problem between need and privilege. So in our healthcare sector partnership work, our hospitals have clearly said that they have retention problems, particularly with entry-level workers. Additionally, there's a cost, but there's also a cost to patient care, and we need to really think about this as a much more dire circumstance. And so when I met with Arena, I thought, okay, well, this is great. We'll plug it into the front of their application system, and they're gonna get this information, except that presumes that people know to find their way there. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't know anybody who's ever worked in healthcare, if you personally actually have never been to the hospitals, you may never find your way to a Cleveland Clinic or a McGregor or a university hospital, and therefore the AI can't help you. So I asked um, Arena a, a philosophical question, which is what if you pulled it off of the ATS and you put it in the middle of the, of the community? ATS, what's that? The application tracking system. So as opposed to having it working exclusively for that company, what if we went cross-sector? What if we went cross the city? And so my idea was to address, yes, people being terminated, yes, people leaving their jobs voluntarily, but also people who wanted to cross sectors but didn't know how to do that. So I came across this statistic that 60% of entry-level workers want to change sectors, but only 42% ever do. So that's a huge lost opportunity. I think, I believe, that there are people who are today in manufacturing who really belong in healthcare, and I believe that there are people in healthcare who really belong in manufacturing, and I believe both of those things to be true. Neil, I want to ask you, there's another part of this quote uh, on the ARENA website that I found that uh, the mismatch that we're talking about is responsible for hardening class lines and slowing social mobility. How do you think ARENA is structured to, to help solve some of those problems? Yeah, I will say that there's technology has focused initially for like say the last 20 years in jobs around skills uh, and academic credentials, which are easy to match, but frankly have an incredibly uh, disproportionate disadvantaged uh, outcome for people because frankly, uh, most skills with a motivated person can be learned and lots of organizations are willing to train and so I think that you know, we've been going down a, a path around um, looking for people who've already done what we want them to do, which frankly isn't very motivating. Like you might want to hire people who haven't done everything you want them to do. Uh, and I think slowly people are realizing that academic credentials, while useful, aren't always the best indicator. So I think that you know, a classic example of how you think about a person fitting a job, there's motivation, there's, uh, so it's like, I want to do it. There's, um, can I do it, which is the skills and stuff, and will I fit? And what we've really focused on is fit, because when you can identify somebody, regardless of their race or gender or other uh, things like that, if you can identify somebody who can fit and have that be the first cut, you're much less likely to cut out the people who are disadvantaged. If you start with cuts around academics or skills, you're cutting out a whole bunch of people. And when, when you're a company and you've got 100 applicants you, and you've got hundreds of jobs to fill, you don't have the time to go through it all. So you want some technology to help you. And so the question is, is how can we use technology that's going to 
not cut out some of the best people in the first round. So what we're trying to do is say, you know, there are ways to identify short lists of people where you're not taking out people who maybe are the most motivated and, the, and maybe will stay the longest because you've developed them into a new career and that makes them motivated to stay. It's just a different way of thinking. One of the things we're also doing, it was mentioned, is we're helping companies think of themselves as collaborators, not competitors. When you when you buy a book on Amazon, it'll tell you five other books you might want to buy, uh, but they're all from Amazon. You know what we're doing, uh, we're starting to do in Cleveland is, you know, you can find other jobs within McGregor, but you can find other jobs in other similar organizations that are going to give you more bites at the apple, more chances to find the job that's right for you. And so if organizations can see themselves more as collaborators, maybe all boats rise. Companies do better, people have better job opportunities. You know, we're trying to figure out win-wins. So can I just interrupt yeah. for a second? So I think we're asking employers to take a leap, which is that if Anne's staffing is solid and retained and happy, that that's actually better for Cleveland and it's actually better for me as another employer because I also have to believe that there are people who are finding their way to McGregor who actually don't fit there either. So there is, um, there is a, a leap that we're asking people to, to take, which is I will give up my applicant to get your applicant who's a better fit. That's a little mind bending in a very tight labor market. I d oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was just gonna add, I I will uh, give a shout out to one of our funding partners and we'll get into the details on this, but it was described to me and I thought this was a great way to kind of wrap your mind around what we're trying to do here in Cleveland. So um, McGregor and Judson and Jennings Center for Older Adults and Eliza Jennings are working together to create the senior living hallway with this arena product. The hospital partners hopefully are working to create a hospital hallway and ultimately um, with partnership with the manufacturing sector to create a manufacturing hallway. But we're going to meet in a, a central lobby. And I thought that was a great way if somebody's applying in manufacturing, but they're actually a better fit for someone in healthcare or at senior living that they find their way. Marina helps them find their way to us. And I thought that was a great analogy or picture to help us really understand what we're trying to create here as a, um, within Cleveland. It's like a virtual job fair in some ways with all these different uh, employers. Uh, I want to um, give you a little bit more detail of what we're talking about. You know, we've been throwing these terms around the, the arena software. Yesterday, um, I filled out the questionnaire that they're using, that McGregor um, and some of these other companies. Um, it's about five minutes, so several pages, and uh, it might surprise you the kind of questions that ARENA is asking applicants. So it starts off um, with some normal questions. They're asking, like, outside of your job, how many phone calls do you make per week? I don't know. You know think about that. Um, <laughs> I get bored quickly. And I'm like, check. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's going to land me a job or not. I don't know. Um, I'm a morning person. Not. Um, I am comfortable dealing with sick people and handling blood or human waste. You know, I don't know. I mean, I would think that would be a criteria, actually, for, for those specific job skills you're looking for. I am good at keeping secrets. You know, am I going to be honest about that? <laughs> because I'm probably not. I'm, you know, if you want to keep something secret, you don't tell me about it. Um, so, and, and it's funny, when I was, uh, you know, going over this, this list with some of the, you know, my colleagues, they're like, you're going to lie about that. Nobody's going to honestly say, I'm not good at keeping secrets. 
Um, but Neil, this is how this software works. You have you know, plenty of other questions on here that really dig into a fitness or what would you call aptitude, right? Yeah, I would say it, it's, are you going to fit into that? And the, what we do, the way we, we um, give predictions, the way the software works is you take the assessment and then we judge a person associated with a particular job in a particular location. So somebody who might be a, likely to stay longer in a rural setting may not stay as long in an urban setting. And so you might wonder, like, how do we know? So what we do is we look at the who for a company, we get three years past historical information about all of the people they've hired and how long they have stayed, and then we get ongoing information. So what happens is the machine learning understands for people in this location, in this job, if they answer this way, they stick or they don't. And we have models, we have a series of learning uh, machine learning models, one for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 180 days, 360 days. I think after 360, things about your boss matter way more than uh, your hiring experience. So we really are focusing on the first year, but it is really interesting to help not only organizations, but also applicants know like who's got a decent shot of sticking with a, comp with a job. Because what we hear is companies are willing to invest, but if these people just don't want to do the work, no matter how much we invest, then we're both wasting time. So what we can do is we can give someone an assessment and then having already scanned all, you know, so we, we have been around for 10 years roughly. We've got 3 million people who've taken the, app, the uh, assessment across 20, or sorry, 2,000 locations. So more than just Cleveland. Uh, and we can then scan in the local geography other jobs that they're likely to fit as we, as we were talking about. And that's really promising. If I know that I'm not just sending a, a, a cross my finger resume for a job, but that I've got a shot at really fitting in this organization and the company will know that I've got a shot, then I'm at least past the first cut. Then I got a shot at really having a conversation. And the key is, I mean, when I was a recruiter, the key was just get the right people having that first interview. Like once that happens, then all good, kinds of good things can happen. But there's so many barriers to just getting that first interview. We're trying to change the way that people look at applicants and have a broader view of what's possible. I just want to lift a couple more of these. I am embarrassed by any mistakes that I make. Yes. <laughs> I guess I'd be honest about that. I like to tell stories. I thought that was an interesting question for a job application. Is that something that, and that, you know, I, I don't know, uh, how will this work for you? How will this help you? I can use an example on that. I like to tell stories. Most of our work is relational, right? You, you're, you're living or you're working in people's homes. So you um, are coming in and working with individuals every day. So if, you, if they like to tell you stories or you like to share about your day, that's probably going to be a little easier in our setting than maybe manufacturing, mm -hmm. as an example. I, I want to, I, I, we're going to go to questions probably about 10 minutes or so. But I wanted to um, address some of the concerns that many people have about AI taking over the world. And an interesting thing on uh, Arena's website, there is a large section devoted to the ethics of AI um, and an acknowledgement that the possible damage a particular system might cause. AI functions more effectively in environments with finite boundaries and fixed rules. So you have to define like what, what ethical framework are you using in your, your company? There are plenty of uh, examples of AI really screwing up uh, that in, in this phase where we're in. And it's 
I guarantee that all of us are going to be interacting with AI in different ways, and we're going to have to trust that the system is going to be self-policing in some way. ARENA is getting out in front of that in some ways by uh, putting together an ethical framework. Um, harm can range from inconvenience to substantial economic and emotional damage for people using this system. We are just beginning to understand both the potential strengths and weaknesses of our tools. Can we talk a little bit about that? How, how are we going to mitigate that? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of uh, risk in, in turning over too much decision-making to computers. I will also say there's a lot of risk of having decisions made by humans. <laughs> you know, as much risk as there is of bias in computers, there's a ton of risk and bias of humans too. And so I think that we, we have to look at both things. Uh, but from a computer perspective, one of the things that we've built is this whole bias mitigation engine. It's a separate set of machine learning uh, algorithms that is looking at, it's asking the question, can I determine is this a male or a woman that we're evaluating? Is, is this uh, you know, age, uh, you know, veteran status? So the key that our adversarial uh, bias mitigation engines are looking for is, is there any way to determine information that might lead to bias before the, the engine makes a prediction? Uh, there, are, uh, there are not that many AI companies who have figured out how to do that in an effective way. And we can actually measure, we've got reporting that shows that uh, you know, if you think of 50 out of 100 being zero bias, you know, we can say with our, without our engine, maybe we're like 50, uh, 54. Uh, with the engine, we're, we're, with the bias mitigation turn on, we're at like 52. The noise factor is kind of like at 53 or more, so like below that you wouldn't even know. But humans are at like 80. You know, so like uh, I think that we absolutely need to figure out how to. Um, help humans be better at bias, make sure that we're, we're not training. There's been tons of mistakes made around AI training where like if you just blindly put in a bunch of resumes, which again are gonna be academic and skill and address location oriented things, you're gonna end up with, uh, frankly, in lots of uh, jobs in the US, a lot of white males that they're gonna try to hire uh, because they have historically done great you know, and, and you have to train your models with the right data. If you train models to reinforce past problems, you're going to get outcomes that are going to continue with those past problems. Uh, and so I think looking at it differently uh, is, is going to, it'll be interesting to see how this works. Yeah, Bethany, I want to ask you, like, what made you decide to work with ARENA? And how does it help you? So at Newbridge, we actually took a baby step into AI um, when we started our sterile processing job. So sterile processing was our first non-patient facing role, and we didn't know how to pick applicants. So What's that job? Describe that job. That is the job that sterilizes all of your tools that are going to be used in the surgery and actually inspects them all for flaws so that they're going to work exactly as they should in the operating room. Very important. It is also a job that you mostly do s solitary and uh, the machine that actually cleans them is usually in the basement and it's hot, and so we didn't know how You're to. You're really pick. selling it. I know, <laughs> but so we we took a baby step into AI, and what we did was we built a profile based on our own sterile processor who's doing the training, and our classes have gotten incrementally better each time. But the problem is our model doesn't learn; it stays static. So unless I change the profile, then it's always going against that same profile. 
what I'm really intrigued by is the fact that Arena learns every single time it gets smarter and smarter and smarter because it's yeah. getting that higher data and that term data. And so I'm just, I think that's a fascinating way because again, I don't, this is how I know that people don't necessarily know that much about themselves. When, so we have three training programs. It is almost- you mean applicants that you're, you're, that you're dealing with don't have that same sort of, I don't know, history, life history that, that has led them to be really good at getting jobs. Or even to know what they should be doing. So about 80% of my students have either cared for a family member with an illness or have been cared for. So they know that they have the empathy and the compassion, but they don't know where they fit into the organizations. And so, and I know this because we have three very different roles that we train for and they, most of my students apply to all three. So there's no, there's no discernment. And so I just, I, I found Arena through a footnote of a 36 page paper. And I said, they're never gonna call me back. I mean, I'm gonna send an email, but you know, yeah. I'm some little tiny place. And it's been the most amazing conversation. So. I think what's interesting um, in looking back at some of the, uh, the missteps that uh, AI has seen in this industry, Amazon, for example, used resume screening software uh, and they found that it was filled with bias, that, the, that it was not, it was much worse actually than having a human do that screening. They couldn't fix the AI, they had to scrap the whole thing. But you're saying Arena um, has the ability to continually improve its Yeah, work? so there's, there, there's two ways we're continue, continuously improving. One is we are tracking over months and years how, how long are people staying based on their answers. And if, they're, if the people who stay longer start answering differently, then we are going to have those new answers be the ones that are more likely. So as things change, but, but the point is, is it's all based on actual outcomes. It's not guesses. Lots of behavioral uh, assessment work is based on we hope so. But what we're doing is we're actually looking at who is staying in jobs and how did they answer those questions for that location and for that job. And then we're, we're matching that to the current people who are applying. And so the, the, AI learns, the AI is learning. The other way it's learning is it's continuously looking for can I tell who this is or not? And that's where the bias mitigation goes in. So there's competing engines working against each other to make sure, you know, basically it's we think this person is uh, likely to stay, and then the other engine is asking, can I tell who they are? And if, and, and if we can get a good outcome and we can't tell a lot of their uh, personal information, that's a good outcome, like that's, that's a go. And so I think that what we need to think about is how AI can be double checking itself and not just be running amok, which I think is historically. And frankly, like I said, garbage in, garbage out. If you put in a bunch of resumes, you're gonna get people who've historically done well in jobs, and we know that that's a subset of who should be getting jobs. Yeah, that, uh, in part of the research too, I was finding that some of these AI systems, um, they really like applicants whose name is Jared and played lacrosse. Well, so, I, I, I mean, there's so, bias built into it. You know, well, I'll just is. say real quick, I, I live in Boston. I was a recruiter in Boston for many years, and there was a study done in Boston, and it really kind of broke my heart, and I showed it to the recruiters where they took resumes and they randomly changed names and town locations, and, and people who had 
white sounding names in white sounding towns, it didn't matter what their skills were or what their education was, they got interviewed more. That is, that was a, I mean, you could look it up. There was a study done probably 20 years ago. I doubt things have changed much in the last right. 20 years. Um, we have a real problem with being able to look at people with fair eyes and we've got to get machines that help us do that. One more question before we turn it over to the audience. Ann, I want to just wrap up with you that uh, all this discussion about bias, but you, how will ARENA improve your hiring? Well, I think you said it best when we were doing some of our planning around, we want to utilize AI where, um, let's say, computers do math really well, humans not so much. So we want to be able to utilize it as a tool, not as the final um, decision-making tool. So for us, and, and speaking to the bias side, from when a um, hiring manager is looking at the applications, they're going to evaluate how long have they stayed in positions. That's probably one of the first things they just look at before they actually decide on who they're going to bring in for the interview because they don't want to go through this again in another three months. So with this tool, the way that we're hopeful to um, continue to implement is that we're starting with the interview with the likely matches, regardless of looking at the um, historical performance from the standpoint of what's on the resume, because that will expand who we're interviewing. Because right now, we know that the hiring managers are only you know, looking, that's one of the first things that they look to. No matter how much you train on that, that's one of our challenges. So I think that's an opportunity for us. We've been um, doing an earn and learn model for um, training STNA, state tested nursing assistants in our um, sector, and we trained um, over 85 individuals. What we want to make sure is if folks are, are being trained, that um, they're staying in those roles and want to continue. We, if we're going to, again, invest in individuals and help them to continue along that career path, it'd be great to find folks who are um, a match in that way. All right, let's um, begin the audience Q&A. Once again, just to reset for, for our streamers, I'm Jeff St. Clair uh, from IdeaStream Public Media, and today we are discussing how we can create and use artificial intelligence, AI technology, to improve the social determinants of work and help eliminate barriers to success. We're talking with Bethany Friedlander, President and CEO at Newbridge, uh, Neil Bruce, Chief Product Officer at Arena Analytics, and Ann Kahn, President and CEO of the McGregor Foundation. So we welcome uh, questions from any, everyone here, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org. Uh, again, you can text us 330-541-5794. And anyone, right, okay, we have our first question. Both professional and legal standards require that people making business decisions, HR and other decisions, are supposed to know what their, the, the resources they're making the, the, those decisions on. Um, traditionally, it's been if you hire a lawyer or an accountant, you better know you've hired somebody who's competent. With AI, the better the program you hire, the less you're going to know how it works, the data it uses, so the less you're actually going to know how it came up with its conclusions. Um, you're saying, well, we're going to have all this after-the-fact testing, which could be years down the road, in which case you've had years of discrimination or just bad judgments. How do you balance using AI, but at the same time fulfilling your obligations as professionals about knowing what you're recommending before you actually recommend it? 
We're looking at you, Neil. I get this one. Great. So, yeah, you bring up great questions, and you're right. The the um, the more you go towards deep learning uh, aspects of machine learning, the less clear the reason is why the machines pick the way they do. Uh, that's just true. Uh, what we do with our customers is we look at you know, the pools of people that are being selected to be more likely to stay. We also look at, uh, and we actually usually, uh, I mean, every time I've seen us do a contract, we do a guarantee that, that it works. So that if you hire our, the people we say are likely, you will see lower turnover. And we put our money where our mouth is, where if that doesn't tr happen, uh, then you will get your money back. So I think the question wasn't that. The question wasn't, does it work? I think the question was, is it fair? And I think uh, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to understand how we can deliver. We're looking at how our uh, bias mitigation is balancing out uh, fairness and looking at populations and seeing, are we creating a a more robust applicant pool, but I think that this is also something that is going to be continuing to evolve. So I don't have a definitive out uh, answer for like yes in all cases. I think this is something that's going to evolve. I don't know if that answers your question. Kind of. Yeah. That's probably the I best I could add. do is kind of. I think the other piece is this isn't, um, you're not selecting the candidate. It's really just expanding the pool. So it's still up to us as employers and um, clin like clinical leaders to make sure that the people we're hiring have the skill set that they need, especially when you are a licensed, like an accountant, being a former accountant myself, I would say the same, right? You want to make sure you're hiring somebody that's technically competent. But it, if you never get to the interview, then you miss out on a whole number of people that could have been technically compliment, um, technically competent, but not um, eligible for an interview. So I think that's where we're trying to solve maybe a little different challenge. It's a black box though, I mean. There is definitely a, a black box element to it. I mean like one thing that I think will be, would be, and I don't know that this has been done yet, but like I would love to see, uh, you know, a, com uh, a computer selection short, list of applicants that has a real bias mitigation approach head to head against a bunch of humans and who's going to be more biased i think that's a really easy answer who's going to win that you know and so i think that um what we're doing now is probably in a lot of ways worse than embracing technology that doesn't really care if you're white or black or a man or a woman it just cares about like are you likely to perform you know, and so maybe that's a better approach, but yeah, to be determined. Next question. Okay. Our next question is a test question. It says, how can this type of AI help high school students determine academic tracks in high school, STEM focus schools and art schools, or find a college or a major? Bethany, are you, you thinking? I'm throwing it to you. So I'm going to. Go back to Kelly. So Kelly has told me that this is much better. Kelly from Arena. Yes. I, I, this is quite funny that I'm answering this question because I'm not the right person. But that, that it's not about helping you with an educational pathway. It's about helping you and a fit for a particular job. And those are really two different things. Um, and so, again, what we're talking about here are m mostly non-credentialed positions. So it's really the fit is the most important piece. Once you get to the credentials, 
I'm, I'm out. I don't, yeah. I don't. Right. That's yeah. a decision that's already been made. I think there are two things that could help. I mean, right now we're focused more on people who are not in high school, but I think similar models apply, which is, uh, do I even know what's possible is the first question. And usually the answer to that is no. And there's a lot more skill transferability than people imagine, to be honest. So there's a art of possible problem, and then there's a, I'll call it helping hand problem. Like companies are willing to invest if they think these people will stay because they've got too many jobs open. And so if you can combine those two, the art of the possible and understanding where you're going to be able to get help, it exponentially opens more doors than what people perceive today. And that's, that's what we're trying to help with. I, I just want, do want to um, take a look at uh, the challenges that we are facing. And this is something that Bethany sent me, that um, there are 53 million Americans who make under $18,000 a year. That there are um, a generation of people, uh, most young workers are stuck or spinning their wheels. So, and they find that uh, these low-wage earners um, have a, uh, no clear path to higher wages. So this is, hopefully, AI might help find people find that path. Right. So we didn't talk about this, but part of my whole hypothesis is that people will persist more in places where they feel seen and heard and a sense of belonging and a meaningfulness in the work. And we want people to persist because... The only way we're going to move people into family-sustaining wages is um, if they stay long enough to take advantage of the training that's offered to them or the apprenticeship or the tuition reimbursement. And so I'm very focused on resiliency and persistence, and I think fit is deeply connected to that. Great. The next question. <laughs> There's some applause. A little scattering. Good afternoon. Uh, my question is directed to, to Neil. Um, obviously, the conversation is steered towards the talent, right? Uh, but is there any mechanism that's put in place to focus on the training aspect, right? Um, you talk about retention, right? Why are people walking away from these jobs? Not just the people that are staying, but how are you incorporating or utilizing AI to analyze why are people leaving, right? And focus on, I think uh, Ann has kind of spoke about the, the training or it's like STNA and everything, how can you maximize to make it more effective for individuals to want to stay? So how are you rolling in or implementing AI from that perspective? Yeah, one of the things that we're actively working on is not just helping with people initially joining a company, but also if you think about once you're in a company for a few years, you might want to look for another job within the same company. And so that's classically known as internal mobility. And it's got a lot of the same problems. Uh, in some ways, it's fraught with more issues because like, if you don't get that job, does everyone look down on you? Or, like, there's a lot of emotional, political stuff. And so a lot of people just don't want to be bothered and they just go somewhere else because they're like, it's easier to get a job. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people here would, would agree it's easier to get a job at another company than to move within your own company uh, for lots of silly reasons. And so I think that, uh, you know, I mentioned there's two issues. There's the art of the possible problem, well, what could happen? But just as important is, am I just one skill away from a new kind of career and would I get help to build that skill? That's an incredible leverage opportunity that people, individuals don't understand and companies are terrible at explaining. Most companies, they give you a list of internal jobs and say good luck. That's not good. 
that's not helpful. We could do better. And I just want to be clear. Marine is this tiny little startup. Uh, we're excited. We're mighty. But, like, we're not going to solve all these problems by ourselves. So, like, I, I don't want to try to represent that, like, we're going to solve it all. But, like, I think we, we can be part of the solution. Next question. Hi, I'm Patrice Blakemore. I'm the Senior Vice President of Equity and Inclusion at the Greater Cleveland Partnership. One of our strategies is around inclusive opportunity, and we focus on increasing um, diversity in leadership positions, so the middle level and senior level positions. When you look at the outcome and, and the, um, the analytics of the AI that you're using, um, have you seen a difference in terms of the racial makeup of those employees who are in those senior and middle level positions? Yeah, so two thoughts. One, we aren't uh, giving the assessment for jobs at the senior level because often those are contractual deals. It's like a whole different game. Um, I think that there's a long play, which we haven't figured out what the outcome is yet because it hasn't has been enough time. But um, there's two ways people get into senior roles. Often they're pulled in at that level, and that's a different kind of problem to solve. What we're trying to do to a small extent is uh, for the people who do come up from within the organization, so the bottoms up approach, making that first cut be more fair so that we're gonna be broader in the, the way we think about who could be possible for that job and go away from, I mean, it's a little crazy that a lot of jobs are like, well, if you've done exactly everything we've done, we wanted you to do for 10 years, of course this is what you want to do for your next 10 years. You know, that's what the skill matching game is about, and that's maybe the wrong way to think. So I think that if we can, we can, I mean, people need help shortlisting applications. The question is, is how do we do it in the fairest way possible? So this is not a great answer, but I'm hopeful that as people with more opportunity, more diverse, populations get considered, they will move up in the ranks over time. We're probably not gonna be the fast track to solve for that. I think there are different kinds of technologies and tools for executives that uh, could make a better, faster path to that. But part of that answer is about persistence. I mean, I'm thinking about a board member who I have who has stayed with the same company for 20 some years and has a master's degree that was all done through tuition reimbursement. And again, that persistence is absolutely tied to fit. Yeah, uh, Bethany has um, some words for that. Moreki, a Greek word for approaching things with passion, with your whole heart. And in Sisu, are you Finnish? No. Okay, and somehow she knows Finnish. Uh, the word Sisu, uh, meaning grit, bravery, and strength, making an extraordinary effort. And I've always felt that too. It's like if you keep trying, you'll get where you need to be in some ways. But um, still, there is a huge concern about a generation and the young people, the question about the high schoolers trying to f break into this, finding it very daunting entering the workforce. But can I also just say that part of resiliency and persistence is we have to believe that people are entitled to feel great about the work they're doing regardless of the level that they're currently at. And I think we, um, in workforce, sometimes we have a little bit of a widget mentality and we want to put people put people in where we think that they need to be or where we can get them to be at work quickly, but, that not, but that's not necessarily the right thing to do. And I think sometimes um, there's a, an elitist view that that kind of passion or that kind of heart work is not for everybody, and I really think that it is. 
I think everybody wants to find fulfilling work, though. I think that's, you know, uh, driving motivation for everyone. Uh, next question. Good afternoon. Um, my question is for Neil. Um, are you using DEI experts to work hand in hand with the developers on the algorithm to um, ensure that the types of questions that are being asked and evolving even with those um, that have secured a job and are moving on to advancement, how are you ensuring that the type of questions are, that are being asked um, and the algorithm that goes along with it is um, in fact non-discriminatory and staying that way? as the system learns? Yeah, it's a great question. So we've, we've used an outside ethics board to help us uh, wrestle with these kinds of questions so we don't do it all in-house. We're trying to use outsiders to help, uh, help make those decisions, help us figure that out. I will say that our, uh, our bias mitigation techniques are helping us understand are any of those questions uh, going to also lead to bias. So I think it's a combination of human intervention and really what the outcome data shows with uh, how, I mean, a, a, a key question when the system is making a prediction is, can we tell much about who they are? And the less we can tell about these uh, areas of possible discrimination, is the less we, we can uh, determine that, the better, because then we're really judging the person and we're not judging these attributes. Uh, but yeah, we've, we've used outside uh, people to help us try to figure out how to write questions. And frankly, it's best to not move the questions all the time because by having stable questions, you get better uh, long-term data on the efficacy of those questions. Good afternoon, Rebecca Kushner with R4 Workforce and the Ohio Workforce Coalition. I first want to say we ought to be careful and not assume that everyone making less than $18,000 is making less than $18,000 a year because of access to information or training, that there's a whole bunch of other reasons. So I want that on the record. Uh, but my question is, how, how do you account for the fact that we know there are employer practices that reinforce bias, that reinforce poor working conditions, that you know there's a number of job quality issues, how do you, uh, I guess, use the information you're gathering either to coach em the employers or at least be aware that you're not reinforcing poor practices by matching people to jobs that are bad? Yeah, for me. Yeah, so humans have big problems at like judging people fairly. That's just a truism. And uh, this is a uh, big thing, way bigger than arena, way bigger than anyone in this room. Uh, I do think, and, and you touched on it, that uh, it's eye-opening for a management team to look at the pool that we show versus the pool they may have picked on their own. I mean, that is eye-opening, uh, to think differently about uh, the, how you would make your first cut of applicants. Uh, I think that, uh, there's tons of things in the way we work that uh, exclude. And, you know, I think that, you know, we're going to have to figure this out. Computers are not going away. Humans, hopefully, are not going away. We've got to figure out how to work so that we can let the humans do what humans do best, which is, frankly, things like empathy and, um, and, and vision, and let the computers do stuff that they're better at, which is typically things like math and uh, 
work that gets done over and over again. And so I think that that's gonna become the art of the future of work, is like, let the humans do things that they're best at, or as long as they're still best at it, uh, and let the computers do the stuff that we're not as good at. You know, and we're not always as good at making a cut of, of the art of the possible. We're just not. I mean, historically, we haven't been. So, like, I think it'll be interesting to see how we, we co-evolve. But, Neil, isn't it also an invitation to an employer to look at those practices if they're not getting as many high likelies? And one of the beautiful things about a community-based model is that you can compare numbers, right? And so I think in, I would see this as an invitation for them to be reflective on their own practices and then think about the high likely and the number of high likelies as an indicator that you're moving in the right direction. I would hope. I mean, uh, I think that um, companies are going to have to have a lot bigger conversation than we're going to be able to have with them to change bad behavior. You know, like that's a much bigger problem than I think we can solve for them. So I think if, if people are serious about this, then there's a lot of things you can do to get better at hiring. Hello again. Our next question is the text question. If AI is going to help companies hire based on fit and potential, how would that change how companies should approach skill development once workers are on the job? That's a great question. Yeah, um, I think that I think that people are much more malleable than we often give them credit for, and they're much more able to learn new skills than we give them credit for. And transferable skills are um, much more interesting than we give uh, people the opportunity for for that. And so I think that um, I think just-in-time training versus kind of everyone's in a room, assuming everyone needs it at the same time. I think there's a lot of technologies that are gonna help us actually learn as we need. I mean, we're not quite at the matrix where I could put on a hat and I can learn to use the helicopter, but like we are going towards that direction of just-in-time training. And I think this idea of using tools to help us train and look at humans as, as, uh, as entities of potential instead of fixed, um, you know, fixed in a box for the rest of their life. I think this is really going to change the way we think about humans working. So, I have a very selfish reason to want to be up here, right? So, I want there to be uh, retention in the workplace because it saves employers thousands, perhaps millions of dollars, and then that is an enormous opportunity for them to invest them in their workforce. And so, that's why I would do this. That why I, you know, so. So to me, that's the answer, right? You, you pour those skills back into Well, and I could just add on that from the employer side. I mean, one of the great parts about this conversation is that from um, many of you don't know that Bethany also leads the Central School of Nursing. And because of the work we're doing, we can, in the earn and learn model we've already established, we can now provide one for an LPN. So we can pay them part of the time while they're going to school in addition for working as an STNA, but it gives some um, a little bit more breadth because it is hard to work full time and go to school and take care of a family, right? That's all a um, challenging, uh, sometimes those hurdles are things that never people don't really get over. And so this is a way for us to reinvest those dollars that we're not having to spend in training, you know, 100 new people because we're hiring the, a better fit. And it's not that it's a better fit for, um, that that person is not the right fit, it's just that fit, that job and that person. So it's I think that's the other piece that we're trying to, to ad adapt to. 
Yeah, I want to emphasize that we're not trying to say a person is likely. We're saying a person is likely with this combination of job and location. They might be unlikely for one and very likely for another, and unlikely for a job at your organization and very likely at an adjacent job at another organization. And that's where the magic really happens, where we're expanding opportunity. Hi. Um, I want a job. I'm going to put all the right keywords on my resume. I'm going to Google the right answers to the personality test. How do we stop people from gaming the system and, and trying to answer the way I think you want me to answer, the way the computer wants me to answer? Because computers can more likely be tricked, perhaps, than, than humans. Humans have the ability to, to have, have intuitions and things like that, and computers are just going off the data, and I'm afraid it can be tricked. Yeah, th there was uh, an example where uh, people were having chat GPT write their resume that went to an AI sorter. So it was these two computers talking to each other <laughs> to, to get the job. Yeah, I'll say humans can be tricked, uh, not just computers. Um, I do really think this game that we're going to be playing in the workforce for the next 20 years is like figuring out what it is to be human and leaning in on that and figuring out what we should let go of and letting computers do the rest. I think so that's, that's... existential question. I, I mean, I just think that, um, you know, we're, we're not, we're not going to stop the leverage that technology gives us. And so the question is, is how can we use it in the best way possible? Uh, I do think that uh, people try to game everything. And, um, you know, Sometimes that works, I guess, is the short answer. And also, I would like to add that uh, some of these questions, the one of, here's any job is better than no job at all. I don't know how to respond to that. I, I, I guess I, I would say a, jo a job, I mean, personally, if I had, I've had jobs where I was asked to do things that I ethically wasn't willing to do, and I walked away. And in that case, no job was better than a job. So I think that there are times, for me personally, I would say no job's better than a job, and then I just find a job that I don't get asked to do things I'm not ethically like, opposed to. Yeah. And I do want to just mention, too, just because a job opportunity comes up as high likely does not mean you are required to apply for that job. It is absolutely your right to continue to have a dream of a particular employer or a particular role, even if it didn't come up as a high likely. And there are people who don't know certain things about themselves, but there's also people who do know certain things about themselves and do have a sense of where they belong. So last question. Oh, where'd he go? Oh, sorry. Okay, that's it then. Uh, what a great conversation. Uh, okay, here we go. Thank you, uh, Bethany, uh, Neil, and Anne for joining us. Forums like this are made possible thanks to generous support from individuals. You can learn more about how to become a guardian of free speech at cityclub.org. Today's forum is part of the City Club's workforce development series in partnership with the Deaconess Foundation. Thank you, uh, Kathy Belk, for her support. Kathy Belk here. Um, and uh, join, uh, join me in welcoming our students uh, who are from Brookside High School. Brookside. MC Squared STEM High School as well. Thank you. Uh, our guests hosted by the Deaconess Foundation, uh, Greater Cleveland Partnership, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, Towards Employment, and the Workroom Program Alliance. Coming up on City Club on Wednesday, Valentine's Day, February 14th, the City Club welcome, 
welcomes Felton Thomas, CEO of the Cleveland Public Library, to talk about whether or not libraries can or even should be everything to everyone. You can learn more about this forum and others at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again, our guests, Bethany Friedlander, Neil Bruce, and um, Ann, well, your last name, um, I'm sorry, Colin, uh, and Khan. Right, I'm sorry, Just a little bit confused there. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate everything. It's a great conversation. And here we go. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.